Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Learning with the Lion, a community read-through of the Gospel of Mark. Over the summer of 2023, members of the Ligonier community are coming together to walk through a 13-week exploration of Jesus' life, practicing reading the Bible together and asking what it means for everyday life. For more information, visit epiphanyligonier.org mark, where you can also sign up for our companion e-newsletter. One of the uh, unique ways that Christianity has expressed itself in America over the past couple of decades has been through this language of family. Have you noticed this? Uh, we have Christian radio stations that play um, Christian music, but they brand themselves as uh, positive and encouraging music for the whole family, right? It's family-friendly music. And then we have you know, political action groups like Focus on the Family or the Million Mother March or the Family Research Council. Um, these are groups that have made the headlines in the past 20 years uh, for their demonstrations and their activism that come from a faith-based perspective. And we come by this honestly. Christianity has a lot to say about the family. Uh, it's the great tradition that our, our, our faith impacts and outflows from us and it impacts our family immediately around us. It's part of the moral framework of the Ten Commandments, right? Honor thy mother and father. It's part of the New Testament moral framework as well. Jesus welcomed children in a way that was unexpected to the ancient world. Uh, Christians were the, among the first to view children not as just future farm help if they can stay alive, but um, they viewed children as um, inherently value in their own right inherently valued in their own right. One of the, the earliest accusations against the early church was, um, believe it or not, it was incest. They said these Christians are practicing incest, which is not true at all. What happened was people heard Christians referring to each other, even husbands and wives, as brothers and sisters, and, uh, well, they just drew false conclusions from that. But one of the interesting things about Jesus and in Mark's gospel and the other gospels is at times he comes off as very anti-family. Jesus comes off as being almost provocatively, um, you know, intentionally uh, anti-family. In the other gospels outside of the gospel of Mark, which we're studying now, we meet, for example, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, who listens to God and trusts God, uh, and when God says things like, don't divorce Mary and flee to Egypt. We meet Mary, the mother of Jesus, who assents to carrying the Messiah for God. We see Mary weep at Jesus' crucifixion. We find out that Jesus' earthly brothers become leaders eventually in the nascent early church. But that's not in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark's Gospel... Uh, we only get a part of the story, and the part of the story we get is how Jesus' family is not an asset to his ministry, but a hindrance. How the family here um, is one of the great opponents to Jesus' life and ministry. We've already recognized the opposition that's coming from the Pharisees and the scribes, but in our reading today, the call is coming from inside the house, as they say. I want to go in depth more today on this um, anti-family nature of, the of our passage. 
I want to draw your attention to things in our reading um, that help explain that. In fact, there are three things I want to sort of point your attention to this morning. I'll talk about history, I'm going to talk about composition, and I'm going to talk about idolatry. Those are the three things I want to talk about. Because what we're going to find is that Jesus' um, work today, his, his role today, of, of pushing his family away and keeping them at arm's distance, it has less to do with disagreeing or not liking his family, and more to do with illustrating the kingdom of God at work. So that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about history, I want to talk about composition, and talk about idolatry. And that's going to help frame this passage in a way where you understand more of Jesus' intention. So let's talk history. We think family is a big deal in our own day. It's 2023. We have TV shows and podcasts and books and, and videos. And if you want to be a better parent, there's plenty of people willing to tell you how. Uh, but, but we, so we take family very seriously in our own time. Um, but the reality is, is if you rewind 2,000 years, the, the ancient world took family with, an, with a seriousness that was exponentially more devoted than our own. We think family was a big deal. For them, it was a much, much bigger deal. In that time, family was not just who you were born to, a social reality, but it was an economic reality, a livelihood reality, not just a bio biological reality. There were no nuclear families, right? The nuclear family, like parents, kids, that's it. You know, that's the, the core of things. They, no, that wasn't how they did things in the ancient world. It was all the extended family all the time, extended out as far as they possibly could take it. It was grandma and grandpa, the aunts, the cousins, the uncles, the great-grandparents. It was everyone. Everyone together tended to live in one village. They had a special craft or vocation within the family. They had a family job that people dedicated themselves and taught the next generation to do. Um, they intermarried with, uh, with, within the other families of the region so that at points you could look around and say, oh, well, they're my distant cousins over there, and, and they're my distant cousins over there because there's so much of this passing around with marriage. Um, and, and the reality is, is these, this is how you built a community and you, how you built connections where these families that came together, that worked together, they, they, they built these solid connections and in a world like theirs, without modern conveniences like daycare and social security and paved roads and modern medicine and grocery stores, um, family was how you got all of those things when you needed them. Family was the security and the childcare and the place you received food and the recovery from illness and the job and the retirement plan. That was all family. And so for us, family tends to be about love and care and support and guidance. For them, family was about survival. To have a good family and to have a big family was to have many hands to make life easier. To have a big family was to have more employees in the family business. To have no children and to not have a family was to flirt with disaster because nobody would be there to take care of you as you aged. And so family members, they shared social status, they shared reputation, they policed each other, they looked out for each other, they cared for each other. And as a result, they survived in a time when survival was not guaranteed. And so it's no surprise then that big families and having lots of kids were taken to be signs of God's blessing, although that is ultimately theologically off. 
In our reading today, Jesus is approached by his family, his mother and his brothers. And the text says that they consider Jesus to be, quote, out of his mind, unquote. It calls to mind the language that Paul uses in, in 1 and 2 Corinthians about how uh, the, the foolishness of God is actually greater than the wisdom of the world. People look at Christians and think, you're crazy, but we're actually doing the work of God. And so you have Jesus' family, and they're coming to his ministry. They would have known about his ministry and his work, and they would have known that he was making enemies with the, with the, the Pharisees and others. They would have known about the crowds pressing in. And so for them, when they see this happening, they, they know Jesus. They've grown up with Jesus. They're, they're thinking that Jesus has gone off the deep end. He, he thinks he's the Messiah. He thinks he's doing all this, this, this stuff. Look at all these crowds. And he, they think, well, how is this going to impact our family? What's his reputation going to do to our family reputation? What are the religious establishment of the day, the Pharisees, going to start thinking of us because we're related to him? And if Jesus is truly crazy, if he's gone off the deep end, we as his family have an obligation to go get him and bring him home. We have an obligation to get him and bring him home and to care for him and to, to get him back in his right mind. And so they come and they try to bring Jesus home. They come and they, they, they try to, 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 to bring him home, to spare him and his family from, from public embarrassment and shame. But then Jesus re rejects their invitation to talk. They come to visit with him and Jesus says, no which sort of ratchets up the shame and embarrassment that you might get in this reading if you're his family. So that's a word about history. That's, that's a word about family and what the history and the family did and how they survived and how important it was and how scandalous this reading is because Jesus is not listening to his family and not doing what his family tells him to do. And the second part that I want to talk to you about is about composition. I want to talk about composition. Mark is going to do something really interesting. For all of you Bible nerds out there, write this down. Um, there's, a, there's a word here. It's called intercalation. And it's when a writer is writing, and they interrupt one story halfway through to tell a different story. And then when they're finished with the different story, they come back and finish the first story. Okay, it's called intercalation. Mark does that six times in his gospel. There are six instances where Mark will start to tell a story, and then he'll have an interlude in the middle, and then he'll come back at the end and finish the story he originally started. If you don't like the word intercalation, you can use this word. You can call it a story sandwich. <laughs> a story sandwich. There's a story sandwich in our reading because Mark starts by talking about Jesus' family coming, and then he interjects with the interlude about the, the calling his ministry demonic. Um, interludes with the part about a house divided cannot stand. And then he comes back to Jesus' family, who he rejects. This is a literary technique. It's a compositional technique. And what, it, what Mark wants us to do is he wants us to see a relationship between the story that he tells the Pharisees about a house divided cannot stand. And it's related to his own house, his own family. Mark is saying in the same way that a house divided cannot stand, and that's true, if, if in Jesus' ministry, if Jesus is truly an agent of Satan working against Satan, he's not, <laughs> um, but the Pharisees think he is. And he says that's a house divided that cannot stand. 
But also, look here. Here is Jesus coming from a divided house, a house that is torn about his message and his ministry. And that house cannot stand either. And what Mark wants us to do is he wants us to look and he wants us to focus on this fact that Jesus is not subject to the authority of his family. Jesus is doing something different, and in the ancient world, people couldn't get away from this. Um, that when the family comes to you, and they need to talk to you, right? You know, when they need to talk to you, um, you don't say no. It's a matter of survival. It's a matter of public image. It's like the, the young man um, in the prodigal son parable. He said no to his family. What happened to him? He ended up being envious of the pig slop because he was so broke he had nothing to eat. And that's what people think is happening here when Jesus excuses himself from the authority of his family. Not even Jesus' family understands what he's doing, A. And B, not even Jesus' family has the authority to derail Jesus' mission. So that's a word about history, that's a word about composition, and both of them, when you put them together, you get this image of, 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 of Jesus bumping up against and, and, and rubbing up against the, the family element of his time and his age. He's doing something different than what was expected and, and required. And now we get to the final word, which is idolatry. Um, you know the, the rule in the Bible, right? No idols. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's a hallmark of the, the words of the Old Testament prophets. It's a very important theme of the Bible. In the ancient world, for those of you who aren't aware, idols were little sort of metal or wood or, or, or stone trinkets. And they would take on the sort of spiritual dimension of a family life. And you have a, a collection of them, and you would actively pray to them as if they were gods. And the Bible is like, why? Why would you pray to stone when you could pray to the person who made the, the, the stone? Why would you pray to wood or gold when someone made wood and gold? Don't pray to a created thing. Pray to the person who gave us the gifts of wood and stone and metal. Pray to the God who made it, not to the thing God made. We don't live in an age, of course, of where we're making idols out of stone and gold and, and wood that hasn't necessarily stopped a thing from being something that God created and given us that we have then turned around to worship as a God. Um, in other words, idolatry is alive and well in our own time, too. It can be money, it can be romance, it can be political power, it can be food, it can be drugs, it can be knowledge or education. I mean, if you really want to see idolatry in action, you know, uh, go to a comic book convention, go to a Steelers football game. I'm not making eye contact with any of you right now because I'm not calling anybody out. I'm calling myself out. Go to a sales convention, go to a political rally, right? Uh, because because you can see people have taken this thing that is good and fun and, 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 and satisfying and, and a joy and made it an ultimate thing. One pastor defined idolatry like this. He said, an idol is anything that becomes more important to you than God. Um, whatever is more ultimately desired, whatever is, is, is the thing that makes your heart sing, if it's not God, it's an idol. And it is not good because idols cannot bear the weight of our spirituality. They cannot do for us what God can. We will ultimately be disappointed and broken if we link our hearts and our lives to something that isn't God. So what we often miss in the Bible, in fact, 
is that al- alongside the Bible's articulation of family values and, and, and um, the, the, the joys of family, is that there are a number of safeguards in place in Scripture to help remind us that family is not the ultimate thing. Family can be an idol. Here's a couple of them, for example. Um, you may remember that Jesus never married during his earthly ministry. Neither did St. Paul. They did not have the kind of earthly families that you and I likely have. One Bible scholar pointed out to the fact, he said, that Christianity was the first, it was the first worldview, the first way of living on the planet that said it's okay to be single. Uh, No other ancient religion said that. No other philosophical school said that. But, you know, not only is being single something that the Bible um, says is okay, it it affirms it and says it's even better. Paul says in the Bible, St. Paul says, I wish everyone were single. That way we could devote ourselves wholeheartedly to, to, to the gospel and the work ahead. He said, but, you know, if, if your libido is pretty, you know, rocking you pretty hard and you really want to have kids, go ahead and get married and start a family. But, but really, you know, singleness is, is what we would like to see because then we could devote our whole lives to the work of God. In my own ministry, which is um, 11 years at this point, I've seen family become an idol over and over and over again. Somebody's ultimate desire. It was true at West Virginia University. That's the place where I was before I came here. Down in Morgantown, I saw it all the time. Young people would go off to school. They'd go off to college. But they would go home every weekend. And they would go home to their family. And they had no friends. They weren't interested in making friends on campus. They weren't interested in networking and and getting together with professors and growing professionally. Their family needed them. And they they felt like they couldn't live without their family to be gone for more than a week. And so they missed out on what college could help them do. And then there were other students. I saw this with young Christians. Young Christians would be given the opportunity to travel and to do ministry, to explore calling, maybe in the mission field, maybe in full-time ministry somewhere else. But their family said, well, what are, you gonna do? What are we going to do? Um, they, they pressured them to stay home, to not explore these callings. Maybe you've heard of the crab bucket syndrome. I love the crab bucket syndrome. It's such a vivid image. Um, A crab bucket syndrome is a way of people communicating, well, if I can't have a good thing, neither can you. And the image is, think of a a five-gallon bucket with a bunch of crabs in it. You've gone crab fishing, there's a bunch of crabs. And one of the crabs on the top has realized that it can reach up and grab one of the, um, the, the, the handle of the bucket and pull itself up and maybe make an escape. What you'll see, if that happens, is other crabs will reach up and grab the escaping crab and pull it back down into the bucket. Because they have the herd mentality. No, don't leave us. Don't go away from us. If we can't escape, neither than you. We're all in this together. Don't do that. And the result is, of course, that the one who tried to escape and the rest of the crabs end up at Captain George's seafood buffet. Right? They, they, the, the one could have escaped, but the others pulled it back in. And it's heartbreaking. I see this over and over again, where young people try to leave their homes and make a success of themselves and start their independent life, but their family uses guilt or condemnation or shame to draw them back home. If you go, who will take care of me when I get older? Fine, go ahead and go. How ungrateful of you to leave after everything I've done for you. Oh, you think you're so much better than us, going to school, getting an education. It's more common than we'd like to admit. I once met a person who had very strong feelings this way. I was in the ordination process and, you know, going through calling and and thinking about what I wanted to do. Um, 
many of you know, I, for a while there, I thought about mission work in China, and um, you know, uh, you, you see where I ended up. So that wasn't where God called me. But um, this person grew up in, in Appalachia, and, and their, their uncle, right, was a part of a big family. But he became an itinerant country preacher, and he started to travel to churches all over the region and eventually all over the country in that sort of like Baptist tradition. Um, where he would go and he would preach and do revival ministries all over. And this person described his family, right? So so the, her uncle was one of 12 kids, and, and there was a big country family, a rural family in this country. Um, you know, they, the uncle was one of many, many kids in a big family community that was very tight-knit. And yet he went off to do God's work and do this ministry, so he couldn't come home very often. He couldn't make it home for Christmas because he was always working in Easter. He didn't make it home for the holidays. And as his parents got older and as the other kids um, got older and started to take care of their parents, they began to grow resentful of their brother who was traveling and doing this revival work. And so this person, that, that person who did the revival work was their uncle. And she said to me when I told her that I was exploring my call, she said, now listen, don't be like my uncle. Go to seminary and then come back home. Live close to your parents. Get a job at a church by them. God would never call people to abandon their family like my uncle did. And I didn't have the heart to tell this person about the missionaries who went to China back in the 1800s who packed all of their belongings into a coffin because they knew they weren't coming home and their, their coffin had all their clothes and their Bibles and their, their, their things and they would ship and they'd get off the boat in China with their coffin full of things and they said the only reason, way I'm coming home is in this coffin because I'm dedicating my life to this people and in this time. And I didn't tell this person about all the, the Hindu and the, and the Muslim uh, believers who, the moment they were baptized, they were taken off the family will. Right? They were written out of the will because no child of mine can ever be a Christian. And I, I didn't tell her the story of St. Francis, whose encounter with God was so powerful, his first encounter with God was so powerful, that he gave up being um, part of his father's very lucrative and rich clothing business. And the story goes that when he was telling his father that he's, he's going off to do ministry, that he had on a very nice outfit, and he ripped the textiles, right? He ripped the fancy fabrics that his father had made and walked out of the room in his underpants. Uh, because he was he was done, and in that moment, his father completely disowned him, and St. Francis went on to live a life of poverty. I didn't bring up any of that, nor for that matter did I bring up this passage. But I think a better way to look at this passage and to help us understand what God's trying to tell us um, it comes, uh, I'm going to give you a tool that I, I use a lot in my own life. It's a, it's, it's a Martin Luther tool he came up with, and he, he calls it the the, the, the difference between the law and the gospel. The law and the gospel. Martin Luther, as he was reading and studying scripture, he said, look, you know, really, you can take all the words of God and you can funnel them into one of two categories. Um, God speaks really two great words. He speaks the law, which is um, God's word of trying to bring you low and humble you to the point where you recognize and despair that, oh, I'm not such a great person and I need help and forgiveness from God. That's the law. Or God speaks the gospel, which is these loving promises and, and, and forgiveness and, and good news given to people who've been brought low. And Luther noticed throughout scripture that God would do this all the time. He would bring people low with the law. He would lay down the law 
But that wouldn't be all he did. He would follow it up with the gospel and, and raise them up again and say, look, you've been brought low. Now you know how much you need me. Now you know how much you need God. Now you know how far you were from how good you should be. So now um, I can give you the gospel and I can tell you how much I love you and care for and everything's going to be okay. And, and to look at this reading, there, there's law and gospel in our reading today, right? What is the law of our reading? What is the thing that brings us low? Well, the scripture in our reading today reminds us that our families aren't here to fill a God-shaped hole in our hearts. Our families are lovely and they are good. God tells us to invest in them and to love them with all our heart. And yet, God also says, do that, but not before me. Um, Jesus says in our reading today, he, he, he pushes back the family and keeps them at arm's length because they're getting in the way of what God has called them to do. And that's a hard, hard word to think that God would do something like that. Um, you know, it, it, we know that this is the case, right? We know we're kind of flirting with making our family an idolatry. If, um, if the single people among us say things like, well, if I only had a spouse, my wife would be so much better and complete, right? That's making um, an idol out of family because it says, um, I need a family to be whole and healthy and secure and good. Or when um, our, our, when, when our adult children grow up and they, they, they move out and they go and they make choices that we don't like and we respond with anger and we get involved and we make them angry and get in fights with them, right? Well, that has to do with our vision of family. We've made family an idol at that point because our children are doing things that are different from the vision of our family. When our kids act out in public, if we're more concerned with what other people think and the public embarrassment of that than our own, our kids, our own welfare and disposition, we're flirting with idolatry because it's the vision of a family being perfect and good that we're trying to, to uphold and we're trying to project to the world. When we let parents who don't have our best interests at heart pull us back into the crab bucket of, of, through some ill-informed application of the sixth commandment. We're flirting with idolatry. And so this passage it wants us to look and to see um, how we are putting our families in a place that only God was meant to be. But, but there is good news in our reading as well. There is good news in our reading, a gospel word paired with this word of law, which is the promise of a new family, one that is spiritual and not biological. How does our reading end today? How does our reading end? Jesus looks around at the crowd, and those sitting at his feet and learning from him, and he says, who is my family? These people. Anyone who does my will and follows me. These people are my family. The people who have been brought low by God's law, the people who are forgiven sinners, they are the ones whom Christ ultimately says, you are my family. That's why we can say to the kids up front that the casserole dish of one lasagna is not enough to feed God's family. We're going to need him to do that fish and loaves thing with that lasagna pan if everyone's going to be fed. Um, because this is great news because it says ultimately our family identity is not in how good of a parent we are. It's not in um, whether we're married or not. It's not any of those things. Uh, our ultimate identity is fundamentally rooted in the fact that God is our brother, God is our father, and Christ is our brother. And we are part of that family. And that family is a good and beautiful family. Um, this is a family where, where um, the, 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 there is no crab bucket. We're all helping each other succeed, right? We help each other find jobs. We help each other when money is tight. 
We make sure everyone's fridges are stocked with food during the highest of highs, like when new babies are born, and the lowest of lows when we're running funerals. We go to each other's funerals. We grieve together. We confer privately about the hardships of life, and we get mad on each other's behalf. Right? We, we go to each other. We take the kids to each other's birthday parties. We celebrate. We make space for the widows and the orphans and the unmarried and the childless. And we welcome them to become surrogate grandparents and aunts and uncles and kids and cousins. We fight and we forgive and metaphorically we kiss and make up too. Not literally. I like you guys. Just, you know, boundaries. But the point here, friends, is, is that for a world which puts so much stock in family and says, you must have a family, it must be like this, and if you don't have a family and it doesn't look like this, well, you're done, and, and, and good luck to you. God comes into the scene and says, no, no, no. You're already part of my family. The great metaphor, one of the great metaphors of the New Testament for what it means to be saved by God is adoption, where God says, you are not part of my family, and now you are, and it's legal, and it's done, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so one day, friends, the reality will be pulled back and we will see our family for what it really is. We will see a great extended family full of cousins and aunts and uncles and and family we never knew that we had. We will all be fully reconciled to our Heavenly Father, um, like the one that ran to embrace his estranged son who was eating nothing but pig slop. We shall see him, our Father, our Heavenly Father, says the book of Job, face to face as a father and a friend and not a stranger, a perfect father who is full of love and forgiveness and desperately scans the horizon looking for us to come home. And so beyond Jesus' uncomfortable words this morning, we discover a promise of love, that we will all have the family we have ever hoped for, wanted, or needed. In Jesus' name, amen. Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.